that we should uh, avoid eschatology. We shouldn't even talk about it, the study of the last times. And one of the reasons is, is it's too complicated. It's too hard to figure out all the details and try to figure everything out. Um, I know everybody's there trying to figure it all out, so y'all hang in there. Y'all are all looking at this thing. Trying, whoa, whoa, what is this? Just hang in there. Y'all look up at me for a second <laughs> before you try to figure this. Everybody's got it all figured out, right? <laughs> Listen, there's a school of thought that says, why study eschatology? It's too hard to figure out. Let's just throw it out. Don't worry about it. It's too complicated. We won't do it. Let's just major on the majors and not minor on this or not focus on this thing. I would suggest that that's not a good approach. And let me tell you why. One, mainly because it's in the Word of God. <laughs> you know, it's all over the Bible. Everywhere you turn, God's talking about his imminent return. Christ is talking about his imminent, imminent return. It's mentioned several times. There's several books that are related just to that in the Bible. So what do we do? Do we throw those books of the Bible out because they're a little bit more complicated? Obviously not. We should study it. God puts it there also to encourage us. <laughs> if, if we don't know that there's something to come, if we don't know that things are going to get better, this can be a very discouraging place to live, can it? God in Christ and Paul talks constantly about looking to the future, looking to my return, looking to these things, having an eschatological focus is important. If you have this mindset of what's coming in the future is all that really matters, it's a good thing because then what you will do is you will look at things like material blessings and say, you know, those things aren't really that important as Mark read in in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, right? That shouldn't be the driving influence of our life. The driving influence of our life should be Christ and his return and his glory, right? So all that said, that's why we're studying this. And as we're going through this book, it just happened to be that Mark got into Daniel and I got into Revelation at the same time. I do confess that I might not have planned it that way, in, in just in the providence of God, that's how it's all worked out. On the same token, this is a stage in our church where God obviously wants us to kind of get the, a grasp on these things. How do I know this to be true? Because that's where we're at. <laughs> and he's brought us to this place, and we're preaching through it, so we're going to do it. Okay? So I'm going to do my best tonight to kind of give you an overview and go over a couple of the concepts. But as... Um, as uh, Stephen prayed, we need the Lord's help. Let's look over at 1 Thessalonians real quick. Just kind of get our minds in the mode of thinking about things to come. 1 Thessalonians 1. Let's read first chapter, a good, good reading to get us started. Paul and Savanus and Tim Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example of the the church in Thessalonica. Lord, help us to have that kind of testimony around our community and in the world we live in. Oh, God, thank you for for rescuing us from the, the domain of darkness and the idols of this world and lord we do pray that tonight as we look that we will look to the hope we have in christ the glory to come and the rescue that he has provided from the wrath to come thank you father for these great truths and we pray now that you will give us clarity of mind we pray this in christ's name amen all right let's uh talk about a couple of things and here's what i want to do tonight my my goal would be this. I, I want you to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions, okay? It, some of you might be a little fearful to raise your hand. Just go ahead and raise your hand if you have a question and you're thinking on something that's okay to ask, okay? <laughs> Davey's starting off fast even before we get started. Uh, so don't be afraid to ask some questions. I want to talk briefly at the beginning. You can turn your notes over and write these over on the back. There's two main systems of interpretation for eschatology and for the Bible. Um, They kind of boil down into two. and The two are covenant theology and dispensational theology. Covenant theology and dispensational theology. I'd like for everybody to turn over to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. These two systems of thought, or theology, have arisen, rather, in the last 500 years. This is very important. These two systems of theology have come about in the last 500 years. The oldest of the two in the 500 would be covenantal theology, and then dispensational theology has been a newer one. But if you all know anything about church history, you would know that how long has it been since Christ died, roughly? About 2,000 years. So this theology is relatively new, both of them, right? These systems of interpretation, both of them are new. So for us to use one and say, well, you're the newer, you're the older, or whatever, I don't think we ought to do that. I, I suggest to you, both of them aren't perfect, and we need to look at it and examine it. And I, I lean with a dispensational theology used in my uh, interpretation, but we will talk about it as we go along. Covenantal theology is this. First, there's basically three concepts. It's based on three covenants. It's based on three covenants. Who can tell me what those 
covenants are for the covenantal theology. Can you, Stephen? Close. Works, grace, and one more. Redemption. Redemption. Yeah, redemption. And redemption, let me tell you what that covenant is. And what I'd like for you to do when I list these, I want you to try to tell me where they are in Scripture. You ready? First one, covenant of redemption. It was a covenant made between the members of the Trinity in eternity past where the Father made a covenant with the Son that the Son would come and redeem a people for himself. And the covenant also included with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would bring about this redemption in the people. He would regenerate people. Can anybody give me the verse for the covenant of redemption? Good answer. There isn't one. There is not one. But this whole system of theology is based on this covenant, one of these covenants. There's a second one. He mentioned it works. The covenant of works says there was a promise of eternal life for perfect obedience. Okay, where is that covenant? No, it's not there either. Okay, now, before you laugh, who in the world follows this covenant theology concept? Many, many people, people I highly respect, okay, highly respect and look up to greatly. Uh, Examples of them in the past would be people like Spurgeon and people like uh, Edwards and people like uh, Calvin to a certain extent was a theology. He would help to start these things. The covenant of works is not there. He takes the concept in Genesis 2 where it says, you know, don't eat of that tree and you'll be okay if you eat of that tree. That's kind of where they get it, I think. And then there's the covenant of grace, the covenant that says there's a promise of grace for the elect in Christ. And Anybody know where that one is? No, there's, it's not there. But this whole system of thinking, when you read the Bible, they read it with that in mind. And this is a huge group. Sproul, many of the uh, ah mills and, and post mills of today, um, and I'll talk about what those terms mean in a second, but many people go with this. Evangelical, conservative, good scholars. Right, Mark? I mean, can we think of, who? name a few, maybe off the top? I mean, I can't think of any more right off the top of my head. Can you think of any? I mean, it, all the Puritans, all the Puritans, um, uh, several, okay? But they interpret it this way. And the problem is, is it has a tendency to spiritualize the Scripture. Uh, when they look at covenants, like the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses and the covenant, uh, the new covenant, they have a tendency to spiritualize these things. And what I mean by that is make it fit under that covenant of grace. It's another evidence of that covenant of grace that they have kind of just derived at from the Scriptures. It doesn't allow for distinctions between the church and Israel. Okay? It says that Israel and the church are the same. And it takes a few passages. Who can name one passage in the New Testament where they might have a tendency to give a little proof that that might be true? Not all Israel is Israel, right? And we got that in Romans. What, what does he mean by that? Not all Jewish people are genuine believers. It doesn't necessarily mean not all Israel is the church, right? That's not what it means. To take Israel and make them the church is a problem with covenantal theology. There's no distinction. 
Matter of fact, another problem that it has with covenantal theology is that it takes the Old Testament, or the New Testament, and imposes it back on the Old Testament. It says, okay, I'm going to interpret the Old Testament with my New Testament glasses on. And you say, well, that sounds crazy. It's, look, it's very common, folks. This is very common. You go back to the Old Testament and you find Jesus everywhere. You find salvation by grace through faith. Well, yes, it's there. In the cross of Christ. Where? When did the cross happen? Thousands of years later, right? We Are there evidences of the cross in the Old Testament? Yes, pointing to it. What are they? I think we could almost name them all out on our hands on one hand. There Are there allusions to an atonement needed? Yes. But let's face it, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, right? There's this thing called progressive revelation. It says that God revealed himself more and more and more and more as time goes along. And in Scripture, we got a better glimpse of who God is and what he did. God didn't change. We just understood him better. And the people of Israel didn't understand completely everything that was going to happen. All of it. Do you understand? We have to be careful of imposing the New Testament back on the Old Testament to interpret. Anybody have any questions about covenantal theology? Everybody got it. Yes, sir. Mark. Right. These co- those three. That's why I, I, I made that. Did anybody? We couldn't find it. Right. It's not there. So these covenants aren't the covenants that are mentioned. What are some covenants that are mentioned in the in the Bible? Mosaic, good. New covenant, right, good. Y'all got them. There's five. There might be another one. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Stephen, go first. Where did they get the idea of three covenants? Good question. All I can say is that when you focus on Reformed soteriology to the point of I want to know about salvation by faith and you got to remember and this is something very important that we all have a tendency to do and even in eschatology can really fall we can fall into this trap we take our culture we take what's going on in our life and we say hmm what are we going to focus on so if I focus in on and they fought real hard in the reformation for what doctrines of grace and the salvation and it's by grace alone through faith alone right all these things and so they focused so much on it what happened they then became finding it under every rock and actually imposing on the text their theological grid in their mind that they have established are these things true that the reformation are founded on absolutely But you have to be careful not to impose your theological presuppositions on every text. You can't do that. You have to be careful. Now, I would suggest that dispensationalists can fall into this trap, too. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They do it, too. We have to be careful of coming with presuppositions, pre-understandings of our culture and what's going on and imposing them on the text and finding something there that's not there. Okay, I think that's. Does that answer your question? Do you want to follow up? How do, yeah. How do they? How do they come up with these things? I think ultimately it's finding the covenant of grace, the grace mentality in it, and trying to figure out even things like 
the uh, when how God made a, a decision to save a people. Well, you've got that, and you're trying to impose it on there. That's why you have a covenant of redemption between members of the Trinity, and it's not even mentioned there. It's something that they're trying to figure out that's not there, and then so they impose on it. And they make the all relationships about covenants. And I think you have to be careful about that too, imposing too much of this into another thing. Yes, sir? Okay, that's a great question. That's a great point. Um, not first. I don't think you should start with it. And I think this is very important with hermeneutics. Even these two systems of theology, this is why I'm a leaky dispensationalist. Okay? I'm not going to let my theology dictate everything. Do I have seven ages? No. Do you notice in this thing you got boxes, but the only reason why these boxes are specific time periods that are mentioned in Scripture. The other ones, I don't bring up. The dispensationalists, you know, there's actually, I think at one time there were seven periods, and then it's changed to five periods, and then it was four periods, and now it's, I'm not sure how many periods there are in the dispensational framework. But again, you can allow, even a dispensationalist can allow this theology to dictate the way he interprets Scripture, and we can't do that. Okay? So that would be more of a check and balance, I think. Scripture should be interpreted as a check and balance. Don't go to it first. Try to get it in its grammatical, historical context first. After you get that, if it contradicts another Scripture, you better go back and check. And see if it's right. Otherwise, you've made a mistake. Does everybody understand that, what I'm saying? Any questions about that? This is pretty deep stuff. Don't let the Bible... Because then what you'll do is you'll pick the passages and let it be the one that's dictating every other passage. And you can't do that. Right. Right. That's right. And it is very difficult, folks. I'm telling you, it is difficult. When you come across some prophecies in the New Testament, and you go, that's what he meant in the Old Testament? <laughs> you go, what? And the answer to those questions often is, yes, because God is God, and he can use a man to write whatever he wants in the New Testament. And he can allegorize even. You can't, but God can, Galatians 6. Right? You can't, but he can. God can take the Old Testament and use it however he wants to. Why? Because he's God. But don't us go back to the Old Testament and do what that to the text. We don't go to we don't go find Jesus in every little rock and cranny, right? We don't find him all the places. We have to stick with a good grammatical historical interpretation. Dispensational theology is this. It's a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. A distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. This does not mean necessarily a period of time. It's an administration where God worked on the earth in a specific way in a particular people at a particular period, I guess you could say. You've got to be careful of making it just about time, though. It's an outworking, an economy, how God's bringing about his purposes in a, term, a specific time. 
It's like a household run by God. He runs things in one way, and then he runs things in a different way. It's the same way with our house. Look, folks, if you came to our house when Brenda and I first got married, we did things a certain way. When we got more kids, we got these kids in the, we run, Daddy runs the ship a whole different way than he used to run the ship. Okay? And when they leave and I have grandchildren, I'm going to run the ship a different way too. Okay? But I am the daddy of the house and I can run the ship how I want to run the ship because God has ordained for me to be the head of the household, right? God has done the same way throughout history. You read your Bible, you see this. There are different ways that he has worked. Did he work with Moses and the children of Israel different than he does with the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we do the same the same things of the law. No, I'm trying. The, the scary thing is, is every time I think of a law that I want to show that we don't have application to, I can't say it because it just uh, here pork. We can eat pork now. We couldn't eat pork then, right? The Jewish person couldn't. Yes. This may be more than you want to get into. No, right, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, let me uh, let me table that one. Okay. okay. Um, put real simple. We're not gonna. I can't get into all the the difference. I would suggest to you that there's an age of grace, but you know I don't even want to go there because I think grace has to do with salvation, and I I, I would want you to see something and, and and get something. Salvation has always been the same through all the ages. This is so important. Whereas God works with a particular people in a different way in those different ages, salvation, deliverance from God's wrath, has always been the same. And that is by faith in God, through faith in God, by grace, through faith in God as he has been revealed to them. Did you all hear that? By grace, unmerited favor, through faith, right? In God, as he had been revealed. For the children of Israel, for Moses, for Abraham, for Noah. All of these people were saved by or through faith in God as he had been revealed to them. Okay? As progressive revelation goes, we understand the glories of Christ more, the glories of God better, but he's still the same God. Okay? And we are declared right by faith in him alone. So salvation is a constant, and you can trace salvation throughout the whole Bible. It's the same way. And Paul does that in Romans when he says that Abraham was declared right, right, by faith, justified by faith. So salvation is a constant. But the way he deals with his people within that group is different. He administers and works in those differently. So there is what's called continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament and discontinuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. What would be some discontinuity things? Anybody? Sacrifices. What else? Following the law. A priesthood. Okay, they were pointing to. They were pointing forward. 
Okay. Ah, oh, that's a that's a tough one because here's what happens is you got the Ninevites getting saved in the Old Testament and they're Gentiles. So we'd still have people that are being brought in, maybe not as many, okay, but the reality is is he still there's a focus on one. Huh? Not just the Ninevites though, Israel. Hagar and probably Right. Right, and he did make it. But there was a main people group that he was focused on, which I understand what you're saying. A nation, a theocracy, a, a nation run by God. He doesn't run it that way now. It's more of a people, a spiritual kingdom. Okay? All right. Any other questions? We getting that? All right. A dispensation is not a time period. As I mentioned, it's more of an administration, the working out of God's plan through the people an economy, not different ways of salvation as mentioned. Each dispensation has unique features. There's different requirements for each dispensation, economy of God's working, responsibilities, blessings, disciplines. Uh, some principles of the law change. You know, y'all read your Bibles, y'all see this, right? When you're reading in Moses and you're reading these laws, aren't you going to yourself, hey, why aren't we stoning these people? Right? Why aren't these people stoned to death? Answer, God's working a different economy now than he was then. Right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Turn the other cheek. That's a different economy, isn't it? Different way of working things out. It's progressive revelation, as mentioned, and salvation by grace through faith. And like I said, discontinuity, continuity. I would suggest that dispensationalists do have a tendency to sometimes be too discontinuity. And some hyper-dispensationalists actually change the new covenant and make it about two different new covenants. That there's a covenant, a new covenant for Gentiles, and then there'll be a whole new covenant when the millennium starts. That, folks, is hyper-dispensationalism, and we need to run from that. Because I, I believe that there is a line that runs through the whole Bible, and that's salvation, Okay. Now, obviously, God's in God's economy, the new covenant is different from the old covenant. Would you not agree? Everybody agree? Okay. Questions? Anybody have any questions now? Yes, sir. Uh, this is something that I argue with a friend of mine considerably about. Um, the meaning of the word faith. When, uh, when you talk about salvation as being a, an outworking of faith. Through, through faith, faith, yeah. Uh, what is faith? Okay. Faith is... A complete, and we can look at a definition if we'd like. Let's go over to Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. <laughs> God gives a good definition there. It's the whole idea of complete commitment and trust in something that we don't see. It's trust, right? And in the case of Abraham, who did he trust in? God. Matter of fact, it says in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteous. He was declared right. So he had the same faith. He completely trusted in God to give him what he had promised and who he was. And therefore, God reckoned him as righteous. And in the same way, we as believers in the new covenant, 
We trust in Christ. We believe, even though we haven't seen him, we trust in his completed work on the cross to pay for our sin. And therefore, we are reckoned as righteous also. So it's not what we do. It's what we trust in or who we trust in, in Christ alone, in, in the God of the Bible alone. So faith is the same all the way through, all from the beginning to the end. It's a heart commitment that trusts in God, in that object. Do you understand? Uh, 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 I like the way that, uh, oh, what's his name? Ray Comfort uh, talks about uh, you jump out of an airplane. When you jump out of an airplane, you trust in the parachute that it will open up. That's a good concept. You're trusting in it to open up, right? You, you trust. You put all your commitment in that. It's the same way with becoming a believer in Christ. You put your commitment, your faith, your trust, commitment to Christ. You say, I can't, you can. Do you understand? It's the same thing in the Old Testament as it is the New Testament. Faith has always been the same. Does that help a little? A little bit. We'll talk about it some more. All right, let's go. Any other questions? There's three views of the millennium. Can somebody tell me what a millennium is? A thousand, thousand years. Millennium, what's it mean? Century. A thousand years. It means roughly a millennium is a thousand years. All right, good. So there's the premillennium, the premillennial view, the amillennial view, and the post-millennial view. What do you think the pre-millennial view means? Come on, guys, give it to me. No, good try, though. Not the rapture. We're not talking about the rapture. Not the resurrection. The millennium hasn't happened yet. Or would we live before the millennium? We live before the millennium. Okay, you ready? The pre-millennial view teaches that the second coming of Jesus to the earth takes place before the millennium starts. You need to get this, please. Y'all write this down if you're not sure. Listen. The second coming of Jesus comes before the millennium starts. That's pre-millennial view. Jesus is coming back before the millennium starts. Everybody got it? Questions? He comes back before the thousand years. Yes. Pre-millennial. Why is that even a viewpoint? What do you mean? Well, <laughs> there, there's several others that don't believe that. So the other two are, the um, what would you say, Mark, percentage-wise? Ryan, how many people percentage-wise of conservative evangelicals are pre-mill and how many are the other way? I would suggest that it's probably more on the, on the ah-mill, post-mill, at least... If you included all evangelicals for the last 500 years, there's much more post and ah mills than there are pre mills. Really? Yes, wow. a lot more. So, what is the ah mill view? The ah mill view was started by Augustine, and it says no. And, and this is so important. It's not no millennium. It actually means a spiritual millennium, not a physical millennium. Okay. So they deny any kind of physical millennium reign of Christ completely. So they say the spiritual millennium could be happening when? Right now. 
the Amel. All right? All right. Who can give me the post? The second advent. Give me the definition of advent because help us. Huh? The coming or the second return of Christ after the millennium. Right. The post indicates the view that teaches the return of Christ takes place after the millennium. The millennium ends with the personal bodily return of Jesus. Okay? Now, it might seem crazy, but several people do this. Lots of people do this. Why? Because they look at their world and they say, it's got to be this way. Christ said he was going to be back in just a little bit. He must already be here. There must be a spiritual kingdom coming. He must already be reigning now. They interpret all of these passages as spiritual things. They take the Old Testament or the New Testament and they pose it back on the Old. And boy, what do they have? They have Christ reigning now. And he is reigning now. Is he reigning now? Spiritually, he is. And so all they've done is taken passages that talk about his kingdom now and applied it to all of them, okay? And you, before we say, wow, that's unbelievable, believe it or not, it makes sense, especially for a person that doesn't see a Jewish nation coming back together, doesn't see any of those things, doesn't see it even possible, sees the, uh, sees the church replacing Israel, why not? Hey, what if you're in the middle of a great awakening and thousands upon thousands are coming to Christ and it looks like things are getting better and the church is growing? It looks like Christ is ready to come. Anytime he could come and the millennium's already happening. Let's usher him in. Come on. And that's what Jonathan Edwards thought. A great preacher. <laughs> An amazing man of God. The reality is, is that the longer we go, a literal hermeneutic says to us, a literal interpretation of Scripture says to us, hey, it hadn't come yet. Christ hasn't returned yet. Revelation 19 is literal. He's coming back. Revelation 20, there's going to be a thousand-year reign. A thousand means a thousand. No more all mills. <laughs> thousand means thousand. And that's what we get. Anybody have any questions now? I'd probably, <coughs> I'd probably lean to the Amel. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I am convinced that if we did an interview with Jonathan Edwards right before he died, he wouldn't be a post-mill anymore. Because a lot of these, he, I think he would have moved to Amel. And let me tell you why. Because he was, he was opportunistic. He looked at the world and said, man, things are getting better. It's going to get better. This is great. But then he got fired from his church. <laughs> yeah. That we can usher in the kingdom by what we do. I think we'd have to be careful of that. There are. Hendrickson and... I think I think the biggest thing is is that kind of trying to land to the best of your ability on a literal hermeneutic. That's so important, folks. What do I mean by a literal hermeneutic? Anybody give me that? I know this is some 
deep stuff. I feel bad for some of y'all guys, including my son Andrew. We are deep tonight. We are deep, deep, deep. Hang in there, okay, guys? I'll do the thing. We're not normally like this. This is more of a theology class tonight. So y'all hang in there, okay, Andrew? Okay. All right. Let's look at this chart here. You ready? Let's walk through it. All right. Mr. Mark has been preaching through Daniel. We got to Daniel's vision last week. You see how that goes right in between there? That's Nebuchadnezzar's vision in, in, in chapter 2. In that, we saw the head of gold. Y'all see it? Head of gold, everybody over here on the left, I can't point to it. Y'all see it on your map? Okay, we're going to go right along. The chest, arms of silver, and the belly, thighs of bronze. And this would be God working, legs of iron. This is God working in what? The Gentile nations, remember? What happened in Daniel chapter 2? He started speaking in a different language. What language was it? Aramaic. Starts talking about the nation, the language of the nations, right? The commerce nation, uh, not Hebrew anymore. Now he's talking about the age of the Gentiles, all right? And we've got these four. He will get to next week. Oh, the stone crushes the image you see on the end. And God will set up his kingdom. All of these, this is patterned, and you'll see it again and again, over and over. All right. The little horn, we'll talk about that later. He'll get to it in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, he has the beasts, and he'll talk about them again. And these beasts are perfectly parallel to the head of gold, the lion with eagle's wings, the beast with their three ribs, the four-headed winged leopard, and then the dreadful beast with ten horns. Ten horns, ten toes. Everybody see this? It's pretty clear when you start reading it, watching it, it's very parallel. We looked at what the nations most likely were. That's up here. Babylon was first. There's their eight, the years of their kingdom. Medo-Persian the second. There's the kingdom ages. Everybody see them? I'm going to get to the end here and I'll let you ask questions. Greece. Rome, ten kings of Babylon, which are also part of Rome and how that all comes back together. All right. Does anybody have any questions up to this point? Yes, sir. We have specific dates and we have clear delineation of the beginning and end of both Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, but it's not included for Rome. Absolutely. I think that's part of the trend. I, I think that's part of the reason why that's Rome. If you study church history, you know that there was not a conquering nation on Rome. No nation came in and conquered them. Okay, now did they suffer many defeats? Absolutely. But was there? Did it ever end? No. In a sense, it dissipated. Okay, it just became Europe. It spread out. And this is why I believe that that, one, that last one's Rome, and it's a reconfiguration of the toes that are filled with clay and iron. It's, it's the same thing, and it's going to probably come with a reformation of that. Okay, And that's how most premillennialists, dispensationalists, take these passages. Okay? So they answer it? Okay. Is there a hard and fast? No. But we do know who, who ends it. Who wins the Roman Empire, ultimately? 
It says the stone. Now, what you could do, you say, well, some might say this. Well, why not be a post-millennialist and say he crushed the stone, he crushed Rome? The problem is Rome kept going. Augustine. Augustine's later, right? So you can't say that he crushed the he crushed Rome when he died on the cross. Doesn't work there unless you what spiritualize and you make well the crushing of Rome happened when Jesus died on the cross. And that doesn't work. I'm sorry, you just can't do that if you're going to stay with the literal hermeneutic. Okay, anybody questions? Any others? Everybody's hanging in there. How are we doing on time? Times of the Gentiles. That's what this is. We're in the times of the Gentiles. All right. That right there, folks, is the scrolls. <laughs> the scroll judgments, right? Breaking the seals, rather. And then we got the trumpets. And we got the bowls. We started, we done, we have finished six of the seven seal judgments in Revelation, right? All right, we won't deal with that one. Daniel's 70th week, I'm going to let Mark deal with that. When he gets there, he'll have fun with that. Um, put real simple, let me give you a summary of it. There's 70 weeks that were ordained. Let's look at it real quick. This is a pretty important passage, Daniel 9. I'll, I'll let you, Mark, you can feel free to deviate from anything that I say, okay? Let's look at Daniel 9. All right. I want you to remember something about Scripture in the Old Testament. Prophecies often have gaps. He's looking, he sees something, he speaks of something, and then there's this time period gap between verses. And you say, where is that? Well, I want to remind you of a passage. And you'll have to look it up on your own, and I don't remember it right off the top of my head, so I'm doing this kind of extemporaneously. Do you remember when John the Baptist asked, he was doubting, and he sent word to Jesus, and he said, are you really the one? Are you the one? And then he sends back the word, and he says, tell him that the one who heals, the deaf see, or the deaf hear, the blind see, remember? And he stops his quote from Isaiah in the middle of a verse. He leaves out the next section. The next section says, and he will reign on the earth, or something to that effect. So what is that? In Isaiah, if you're reading it, you're thinking what? Messiah is going to come heal blind, or heal the blind, heal the deaf, raise the dead, and reign on earth. If you're reading Isaiah, you're thinking it's going to happen right away. Jesus stops intentionally in the middle. Right in the middle of the verse. So are there gaps? Yes. There's gaps of time. Maybe even the middle of a verse. We have that in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Look at it. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Who would be your people? Israel. Israel. Right. And your holy city. He's talking to Daniel. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy weeks for all that to happen. Seventy weeks. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Somebody add that up together for me. That is 
69. Where's the other week? We're missing one. We're missing a week. Let's keep going. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks from that decree. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Bing, 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 bing. Who can tell me what that probably is? It's pretty, I mean, it's fairly clear, right? Messiah is going to die, right? And have nothing, right? And the people of the prince who is to come, different prince, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant. Who's this he now? This prince. So We've got a time gap. Something's happened. Where is this covenant? And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Up, oh, there's our other week. One week. But in the middle of the week, he will put his stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And to the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What is that last week? That's the tribulation period. And in the middle of it, you have the abomination of desolation. You have the prince who is, a, who is the Antichrist. And we have what? All 70 weeks. Do you understand? And then Messiah is restored. Or Messiah comes. He's cut off until that point. Do you, does everybody understand this? The end of the Gentiles happens at that point. The age or the time of the Gentiles ends there. Notice it says Daniel's 70 weeks from 924 to 927. We got 7 plus 6 is 62 is 69. You got 749. That's 483. Add those years. If you take a week as 7 years, it's 483 plus 49. There was a decree at the 49 mark. And then there, then Messiah rides in, and when you read this, and we can study it, and you might disagree, but I really do go with um, the interpretation that if you look at it on a lunar calendar, it's the exact day Jesus rides in on the donkey. The exact day to the day he rides in on the donkey, and then it's cut off at the end of the week. 483 years plus 49. That's seven years times 69 is exactly to the day he rides in. Then he's cut off. Okay? We'll talk about that later. You can deal with that on your own and study it. You got the three and a half years of the first half of the week and then the three and a half years of the second half and Daniel 12, 13. That's a totally different thing. I'm not going to deal with that right now. We got the cross. Do you all see where the cross is? Okay? You got the first coming, that would be considered the first coming. And then you've got the coming of the Messiah. This is a phrase used for the whole time. He leaves for his, res- for his ascension. The age of the church. Everybody sees. We got one week left, the tribulation week, 70th week. This is the second coming. This is... Again, the second coming includes what? Includes the tribulation, includes all that time before he comes. Here's the rapture views. You ready? This one is the pre-trib rapture. Boom. That one says that 
because the tribulation period is about the Jews being restored primarily, and by the wrath of God being poured out, the church will be raptured before this tribulation starts. Does everybody understand that week? The mid-trib view, <laughs> several, mid-trib view says that at the abomination of desolation, at that point, then those who believe are taken up to heaven. Problem with that is what? There's wrath already been happening. What do you do with Revelation 6 that we went through all this last couple of weeks? Then you've got the pre-wrath view. That's right there near the end when things get really rough. And then the church is taken out. They're taken out before it gets really rough. Again, I don't see how you can do it. And then the post-trib view says that right before Jesus comes back, we go up, we meet him in the clouds, and we come right back down. And we avoid all, we go all the way through the tribulation. By the way, before you say that doesn't make sense, remember our first Thessalonians passage where it says, and you endure tribulation, same term for tribulation. They might say in their mind, hey, the church has always had to deal with tribulation. Why not during the tribulation? God can protect us. That's exactly what Piper would say. I think he's a post-tribber. Okay? And then, this is the day of the Lord. It's the whole period of time. But the intensity of the day of the Lord is at the end of the tribulation and the end of the millennium. What happens at the end of the millennium? Oh, there's Christ's return. Sorry. <laughs> a thousand year reign. How about it? Yeah, Christ's return. And then there's an intense period at the end again when Satan's loosed. And then the new heavens and the new earth. All right. Questions? Anybody? Yes, sir. So on this chart, we're the, the church age box right there? Yes, sir. So by this chart, we're halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this, this, <laughs> he's got us, notice that, uh, notice that uh, he's got us in the now there, right? He's got us actually in the prep right before, right before the tribulation is what he's got us. So, I swear, hey, this is Ken Fuller. We've argued about this for a while. A couple of y'all have argued with me, but that's where he's got it. Yes, And he intentionally set it up that way, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, mainly because we are some weak people. And we need to be looking and aware and ready and thinking that he could return at any time. We need to know that. And I think he set it up that intentionally. Um, also, the hope of it, that he could come back any time. You know, that's some great hope. I'm thankful that tonight he could come back. And I believe in the pre-trib rapture. He could come back and rapture us right away. And he could start this whole second coming. It's good stuff. Yeah, great point. He set it up exactly that way. Any other comments or questions? That's pretty intense, isn't it? 
but it's not bad. Hey, listen, if you have questions, you're, feel free to ask it even after. I'm not saying that um, this is perfect by any means, um, but it's the best we got right now. So, yes, sir. That's right, and that's a post-trib, a post-millennial post-trib song. You're exactly right. And, you know, if you really watch your hymns, some of the older hymns, a lot of them do that. There's this whole idea of ushering in the kingdom, and, yeah, I agree. We have that. Now, obviously, we can apply it to our evangelism, but we do have to be careful of that, yeah. Notice I didn't give any dispensationals, your your time periods. I didn't, I didn't have all those charts with the... Yeah. Well, I just, I wonder, I mean, the, the issue of, like, what's revealed to them at that time. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I get confused by, well, what about now? I mean, there's people groups hmm. that don't have a certain amount revealed to them. That's now. a good question. No, no, that's a good question. Actually, Daniel asked the same question at lunch. He asked the same question. He said, okay, so if we believe that it's about the amount of information that a person has about God um, then or a dispensation, then doesn't that mean that somebody in Africa that de- hadn't heard the gospel could then get saved and um, just by having a lesser amount of knowledge? Um, a hyper-dispensationalist might go that way, by the way. What's the the African-American preacher that's really Tony Evans? Tony Evans takes that view. He says that people in some other countries are in a different dispensation, even though a different economy, even though he's literally preached this, that they are under a different dispensation, so therefore they can actually get to God without knowing Christ. The answer to that is no. Uh, huh? yeah. yeah, and also Acts, where it says there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Jesus is the only way during this time. I would suggest you still got the people of God, and God reveals himself to them enough to be saved. We know now that it's the name of Jesus that we're saved. And during this period, the revelation of God is the name of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. That's what we know to be Give them the knowledge of himself and draw himself to him, us to him, by knowing that truth of who he is. And that's kind of what I said to you. I said the same thing to him. I said, look, it's, it's nothing for God to bring a missionary to somebody and point them to the gospel. It's nothing. God can do it. And he does it. Praise the Lord. And we have a responsibility to do it. Because he uses us. So, yeah, the gospel is still going to be the same. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a huge, uh, I guess, a comeback or a, a, an unbeliever's fault. When you're witnessing to a person, they usually they like to bring that up a lot and totally disregard the whole Bible and everything and 
shame God because of that whole situation. And I like what Ray Comfort talks, you know, and they said, what about that person in Africa? They're just going to die because they don't know Jesus? And, of course, he says, well, they're going to go to hell not because their lack of faith in Jesus, but because they sin against God, and that's their punishment. But, yes, they don't know Jesus, so how about you get saved right now and go be a missionary? (laughs) Tell them about it. (laughs) Don't Don't use it as an excuse. Yeah, go tell them. Hmm. Yeah, there's no excuse. God reveals himself. Yes, sir. Isn't that a primary motivation that we all have to witness? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have a responsibility to go out and proclaim the gospel because that's how people are saved. Romans 10, right? How are they going to hear without a preacher, right? Good. Questions? Any other ones? Good Good point. Good point. Do you all get this? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. No. The day of the Lord thing. Yes. 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 So you're saying we break it up into like it's a time period. It is a time period. It's also this specific there's an intensity. Then it's, there's, it's this one day. Yes. And the the how do you get the day of the Lord? Real simple. Go to the passage that it's referred to and look at the context and which one's he talking about. Is he talking about the whole period? Or is he talking about the intensity period? When they talk this morning, I think they see the whole period. Remember, the, the ones that they called on the mountains to fall on them, the great day of the wrath. I think they see the whole day of the Lord, that the Lord is coming back, the day of the Lord. They see it as a time period. I think they just see it as God getting everything right. I don't know that one. You'll have to give me context on each one of them. But I think there's also a passage that says the great day of the Lord. So what's... That's probably the intense passage. But again, you have to look at each one and look at every one and see. But I don't think you can say it's one day because it, it, too, it too often talks about it as a period. Would you add anything to that, Mark? No, it's a period. I see it as a period. It goes all the way into the millennium. Absolutely. All the, all the way to the end is the way that it, because of the great white throne judgment at the end, where everybody's brought before it, that's part of the day of the Lord too. But again, when you say day of the Lord, if you say it as the period of time that the Lord reigns, it makes sense. Period of time that the Lord reigns. And he reigns on earth during the day of the Lord, which is beginning in tribulation all the way to the end of the millennium. Yeah, that's a a whole other issue. (laughs) Who goes into the millennium and what are those? Let me give you just a basic overview. Listen closely. This is hard. Ready? There's the resurrection of the church that goes up at the rapture. They're given glorified bodies and we are the bride of Christ and we rule and reign with Christ during the millennium kingdom. And we are co-regents with him is what the Bible discusses. That's one resurrection. You also have a resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. People that died during this period and the Old Testament saints that have died. Those people, those people are like Abraham, Moses, all these people. And during the tribulation period, we'll see next week that it's highly Jewish. 
A lot of Jewish people, 144,000 from the tribes. It appears that these people will be the national focus of the millennium. Okay, now this is my take so far. Y'all can argue with me later, but this is my take so far on this. They will be the nation of Israel that will be reestablished during the millennium kingdom. And the nations will all look to them, as it talks about at the end of Ezekiel. Okay, that that nation. We're co-regents with them. We're almost like the White House staff for the president, King Jesus. Okay, we're the church. The others would be the national Israel. And then there's the others that live through the tribulation and they are in physical bodies and they repopulate the earth. So there's basically three types of people or three groups of people during the millennium kingdom. Questions on that? Does that answer it? So the resurrections would be at the end of the uh, at the end of the tribulation will be the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. King, people that died that were believers. They will be the nation. They will be the forming nation. The, there's also a resurrection at the very end of all those that have died outside of God and don't have any hope. They will be resurrected and then thrown into the lake of fire for final judgment. So there, in effect, is three resurrections. Yes, sir. Christians that have already died are in Christ. They are resurrected at the at the rapture. We are met with our body. We meet with those people that died before us. The rapture people go up, meet those who have died before us in Christ. First Thessalonians four. Okay, that's one resurrection. That's the church and the believers in Christ. Then you've got the second resurrections at the end of the tribulation period. Those who have died. Old Testament. And during the tribulation period, tribulation saints. And then you got the final resurrection, which is all those that died outside of God's forgiveness. And they'll be their final judgment. They'll stand before God and then be cast in the lake of fire in the final judgment. Along with anybody in the kingdom that did not follow the king. that Because there's a repopulation going on during that time. Do you understand? Those people still have the battle. They don't have Satan as their guide during the Millennium Kingdom, but they still have this, the old man that they're having to battle. And we're helping to reign or rule and reign with Christ, probably helping to judge and, and help them go in the right direction. Wild thought, huh? We've battled, we've battled sin for, what, however long we live. We'd probably be good counselors for these people, huh? So, um, well, no. Hey, I know exactly what you're going through. <laughs> I remember before I got my glorified body how bad it was. Here, let me help you out. Okay? That's just my take on some of these things. Questions? Pretty intense stuff. Look, visitor, please forgive us. Everybody, look at our visitor and tell him this is not the way it normally is. (laughs) You came to... Huh? (laughs) If you come hang out at our house, we can sometimes get into this. Usually it's just a sermon from the, okay, y'all hang with us, and y'all make him feel welcome afterwards. We're thankful you came, very thankful, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us, Uh, deep, deep thoughts and deep, deep things that we went over. And, Lord, we all are probably, um, (laughs) many of us are probably going, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll help us over time to discern these things, to 
be all about your word and about the Savior. And thank you, Father, that um, our salvation is not found in um, how much we understand of your scriptures, uh, but our salvation is found in trusting in Jesus alone. Thank you for sending your Son to die in our place and rise from the dead to provide victory over sin and Satan and to provide righteousness that we could never attain on our own. Oh God, help us to honor Christ this week. Thank you for your glory, your grace in our life. And we commit this week to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. If you have any questions, you're welcome to come up and ask.